When many of us think about being prepared to share our faith, it can sort of seem like being prepared for a job interview. The desire to get it right, the pressure to say the right thing, or sort of just the significance of the interaction impacting our future. And many of us have family members or friends that every Christmas or Thanksgiving or every time we get together, they sort of throw out their bad church experience or their story, or they throw out a rhetorical question. And before you can answer, before you can jump into the conversation, the subject changes and they move on. And they may or may not want to have an actual conversation, but they say something like, oh, so you're a Bible person, right? Oh, I forgot you're religious. You probably can't on Sunday because of church, right? Or I used to go to church, insert bad church experience. And today we're continuing a series called Prepared, with the goal being that we are going to help prepare you to share your faith by talking about some anchor points or giving you some anchor points to our faith. That when, not if, opportunities come our way, we can move from just sort of passing comments to conversations that percolate over time. And this isn't just a, this isn't going to be a series though to, to answer all your questions about faith. That's not what we have time for today or in this series. But rather it's to help you to start conversations that may progress over time. I know most of us want to be ready for those kind of moments when they happen. And if you're not a Jesus follower yet, we're really glad you're here. And this is going to be a great opportunity to sort of get a behind the scenes look at what we believe and more importantly, why we believe it. Um, last week, we started the series by looking at some writings by Peter and Peter followed Jesus really closely. And in fact, later he became a very important church leader in the early church. Um, he wrote a couple letters to the Christians in the first century. And the first letter, First Peter, aptly titled, um, he gives us some context for the discussion of what we're going to have today. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3. If you want to follow along the Bible app, you can follow along there. You go to the More menu option, then select Events to find our church. You can also go to the Notes section of the chat. You'll find our notes and verses there, or you can just stay on the screen. We'll have them on the screen as well. 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 15, it gives us some context for some of our discussion today. He says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And the interesting thing is what Peter doesn't say. Peter doesn't say, be prepared to answer every question that comes your way. He doesn't say, be prepared to explain the Christian worldview in a very convincing way. He doesn't say, be prepared to explain any verse that someone points out and says, what about that verse? He doesn't say, be prepared to explain why some Christians do weird things and why some Christians don't behave properly. He doesn't say, be prepared to give a defense for the hypocrisy of Christians in previous centuries. But basically, Peter does say, here's what you're responsible for. Here's what you need to be prepared to share. That you must be prepared to give everyone who asks you the reason or the answer or the explanation for the hope that you have. In other words, we need to be prepared to answer the question, why do you follow Jesus and why do you have hope? And um, we sort of wondered, uh, what would Peter say? And it's pretty obvious, I think, what Peter would say because we looked at some of Peter's writings and he looked and pointed back to really one word. That the reason that he had hope was, the resurrection. That was the reason that he had hope. And he would say, it's pretty simple, that when you see someone die and then you have breakfast with them later, you kind of just go with what they say. Or when you see somebody die and then you see them buried and then you have breakfast with them afterwards, you just go with what they say and you follow what they say and you believe them. That when someone predicts their own death and, and resurrection, you go with what they say and you follow them. And in fact, in the first century, every Christian would anchor their hope or would tie their hope to an event in history, the resurrection of Jesus. That they didn't tie their hope to some sort of personal experience or God answering prayer or somehow God coming through for them. And so, if we're going to be prepared to share our faith, then our hope needs to be anchored to the resurrection as well. And so we ended last week with a statement that hopefully you remember. The statement was, I believe Jesus died for my sins and he rose from the dead. 
But I don't believe that because the Bible says so. It's so much better than that. And so today we're going to pick off from where we pick up from where we left off last week and talking about that so much better than that part as we continue to get prepared in sharing our faith. So today I want to talk about how to talk about this book, the Bible, when the Bible becomes the subject of the conversation. And I want to give you a couple quick, simple and uh, easy statements to remember that will sort of help tie together the significance of why we take this book so seriously. But here's the problem. Many of us were connected to churches where the Bible was the infallible but also somewhat indefensible foundation of our faith. And some of the people that may have presented that to you might have said it directly or they might have sort of indirectly said it or it might have been implied. But basically our presentation was this is the infallible book, this sort of this book that is our faith is based on and everything's true. But then in reality it was sort of indefensible. You didn't have a way to defend it or to stand up against it. And here's some great news. You don't have to defend the entire book. About six years ago, there was a, an interesting BuzzFeed article written by a lady named Jessica Meisner, and she wrote the article titled, Why I Miss Being a Born-Again Christian. And it's sort of this brilliant written article by this woman who um, grew up in church, going to youth group, going on mission trips, summer camps, um, singing the song, sharing her faith, but also growing up with a sort of an interesting or tricky part to believe about the Bible. And, and while she was at a prestigious university, um, people directly and indirectly started poking at and picking at the infallibility of the Bible. And so consequently, she lost her faith. And um, it's sort of this interesting article, it's well written, that basically her point was, even though I'm not a Christian anymore, I miss some of the aspects of being a Christian. And it's this humorous, serious, at the same time kind of article. But here's one of the statements that sort of underscores the significance of our discussion for today that she uses the term evangelicals to describe students like her who grew up in church and, and um, believed and followed Jesus and then they eventually went off to school, college, grad school, and then somewhere along the way academia undermined their faith, particularly their view of the Bible. And here's what she says, we evangelicals with our infallible view of scripture ripped from our hands were left gasping for air. If you crumple and toss out a little reading of the Bible, then what does it mean to talk about Jesus literally dying for your sins? And unfortunately, there are generations of students like Jessica who, again, would go off to grad school or go off to college, and they would have sort of similar experiences, that this is the story of my faith, and this is why I believe what I believe, this is the infallible book that I believe in. And then someone would come along and say, well, I can point out one area that's not infallible, and it can't possibly be true. And then... Um, the Bible sort of becomes a house of cards. You pull out Genesis and all of a sudden John falls down. You, you, you poke holes at some of the historical points of the Old Testament or New Testament and then the whole Bible sort of just collapses. And then like maybe many people, maybe like you, it sort of seems like there's no other option but to walk away from Christianity. Because someone told you or told her something about the Bible, it just doesn't quite make sense. And here's the good news and here is why we are talking about this. That the foundation of our faith as Jesus followers is not the Bible. The foundation of our faith as Christians is not a book. Now you're going to need to give me a few more minutes to just explain that in a little bit. And first I want to talk about the Old Testament, then I want to talk about the New Testament. That basically when they talk about the Old Testament, that Jesus when he was on this earth, he would walk around and he actually talked about the Old Testament. He made lots of comments about it. And it seems sort of obvious that Jesus took the Old Testament quite seriously. And he taught from it and he, he's commented on it quite frequently. And so it seems that Jesus believed that the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible 
was inspired by God. And he would reference some of the historical characters and he would, he would make statements about it. But in particular, there's a statement that he said about the Old Testament and why he took it so seriously. And the, the, math, the gospel writer Matthew, I should say, um, records this account for us. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus said this, Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. That basically, he's, Jesus would say, I haven't come to abolish the, the, the teachings of the, uh, the Hebrew Bible. I haven't come to abolish the law. I haven't come to abolish the, the prophets, the writings of the prophets. I value them myself. In fact, I've come to actually fulfill what those things said. And he would also say sort of in another instance that if you do anything to the Hebrew Bible to sort of change it or manipulate it, you better be pretty careful, he would say. And Jesus apparently believed that the Hebrew Bible was inspired. Now, as Jesus followers, the reason that we take the Old Testament seriously is because Jesus took it seriously. And the fact that Jesus mentioned many of the Old Testament characters and narratives and, and he discussed them is really quite powerful. But I want to ask you a question. Which is more compelling? I believe God created the world because it's in the Bible, or I believe God created the world because Jesus seemed to believe that. Now, I know which one seems more compelling, the fact that Jesus would talk about that. And really, Jesus referenced the creation story in Matthew 19, and he sort of talked about that. And so the reason that I believe that God created the world is not just because it's in the Bible. It's so much better than that. It's that the fact that Jesus actually referenced it, and he seemed to believe that God created the world. That our view of the Old Testament is the same view that Jesus had, really. And that we take the Old Testament seriously because we take Jesus seriously. And in being prepared, our goal is really to get people to Jesus as quickly as possible because we're responsible for being prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have and the reason that we follow Jesus. And so we want to get people to Jesus as quickly as possible. Now, there comes a point when this is a little bit more complicated and you might be saying like, okay, hold on one second here. That seems a little bit different than what I grew up hearing. And, and some of you maybe are really paying attention and saying, well, hold on a second. Like, that just seems like since... Since the Bible is how we know what Jesus said, that you're sort of just saying that, um, that aren't you using the Bible to prove the Bible? And it's sort of like circular logic or circular reasoning. And you're saying that since the Bible says this and it has the Old Testament, and sort of that's also how we know what Jesus said. So it sort of seems that Jesus is in the same book. So you're using the same book to prove the same book. And it's just not quite true. And I would say, well, we're not using the Bible to prove the Bible. It's so much better than that. And if you don't know, the Bible, the word Bible, comes from a, a Latin word, which came from a Greek word, which basically just means books. And the Bible is a collection of ancient manuscripts or books put together all in one book. And these ancient manuscripts that we have in our English Bible run from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And all these ancient texts existed before they were put in the Bible. They weren't written in the Bible and put together in the Bible. They were written much earlier than they were put in the Bible. That many centuries ago, someone bound up the Old Testament documents or the manuscripts and put them together in what was called the Hebrew Bible. And then as Jesus went around and he taught and he did things, people decided to write down what he said and what he did. And then they put together a gospel account, the gospel accounts, which are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then after Jesus departed this earth, there were some eyewitnesses and some people who knew eyewitnesses who started to write as well. And so all these Old Testament and New Testament documents existed before the Bible, before they were sort of put together in this piece of leather. Which brings us to a subtle but really important and helpful distinction. That the Christian faith does not exist because of the Bible. Any more than you exist because you have a birth certificate. That your birth certificate documents something that happened. 
And if you lose your birth certificate, the good news is you don't just like cease to exist, you still exist. That you do not exist because of your birth certificate, it just simply documents that you were born. And the New Testament documents something that happened. And here's another important and subtle but helpful distinction, that Christians don't believe the Gospels are reliable because they're in the Bible. That Christians throughout history have believed that the Gospels were included in the Bible because they were considered reliable. That we take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John seriously because people who were close to the action and considered, this, considered them reliable witnesses and testimony to what Jesus said, they thought they should be included in a book because they were reliable. Now, if you remember in college English, you sort of, most of us had to buy like a, a collection of short stories and you'd probably read about four of them and you sort of would wonder like, well, why did I buy this whole big book of all these short stories and I only have to read four of them? And your teacher would say to you or your professor would say to you, these are the greatest short stories in the world. Now, no one would say that these are great stories because they're in this collection of short stories, right? Like that wouldn't make any sense. Nobody would agree with that. But the reason that they're a collection, that they're in the collection of short stories is because they are great. That they were great short stories before there was ever a collection of these short stories. They were great before that even happened and then they were put together in a collection. And in the same way, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the testimony and the life around the, uh, around the view of Jesus were included in this collection of ancient manuscripts because they were considered credible and reliable by those who were close to the action and those who knew what was going on and they decided that they should be included to be the actual authentic words of Jesus. There were people that studied this and compared this and were, again, were eyewitnesses and said, these are the actual words of Jesus. We believe that this is a good account, so we should include it in a document. And so the Gospels are considered reliable because of who wrote them and when they were written. Now we're going to kind of get into a little bit of the when, but also the who, by talking about something that maybe you haven't learned about before. That in AD 70, the Jewish temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. And um, this was during the first Jewish war um, where the Jewish rebels were sort of rebelling against the Roman Empire. And there was a group of people that were sort of gathered together to terrorize the Roman soldiers, to terrorize the Roman citizens um, within the, the area of Judea or the Holy Land. And Rome eventually had enough of it and they basically said, let's go take care of this. So they sent Vespasian in to basically conquer all the towns and cities leading up to that, the villages. And so all these Jewish people sort of retreated back into Jerusalem and they sort of stayed in Jerusalem and um, just stayed within the walls of the city and they thought they'd be protected. So Vespasian says, I demand you to come out and surrender the city. And they say, no, come and get us basically. And so inside the city of Jerusalem, um, it's just sort of chaos for about four years. Um, Vespasian can't stay to take care of it because he eventually goes back to Rome to become the emperor, but he leaves his son Titus with the charge of taking the city and taking over. And so one of the things that they start to do is the Romans start to crucify Jewish people that they find sort of outside the city, trying to escape, whatever, and they crucify Jewish people all around the city. Um, Josephus, one of the historians who was there at this time, he says, in one day they crucified over 500 people. Basically their idea was to scare the inhabitants of Jerusalem into surrendering the city to the Romans. Um, finally, in AD 70, Titus gets through the first wall, and then the second wall, and then the third wall, and he invades the city. And Titus and his soldiers at this point are pretty mad because they've been there for about two and a half years. Now, this may be called the Holy Land, but during the summer, it can be so hot that it's not holy, if you know what I mean. That in the temple, uh, at, at some point, the temple was accidentally set on fire and eventually destroyed. And so the same temple that Jesus was in and prophesied about and taught in, that same temple was completely destroyed. 
And here's a snapshot of what happened from Josephus, again, who was there when the Romans entered the city in AD 70. He says this, The slaughter within was even more dreadful than the spectacle from without. Men and women, old and young, insurgents and priests, those who fought and those who entreated mercy were hewn down in indiscriminate carnage. The legionnaires had to clamor over heaps of dead to carry on the work of extermination. That this was a huge event in the life and unfortunately the death of Jewish people. That hundreds of thousands of Jews were killed during this time. And at this point, basically, ancient Judaism ceased to exist. That if there was no temple, there was no temple sacrifice. And if there's no sacrifice for sins, what were they supposed to do? And so ancient Judaism sort of died at this point as well. That basically the temple was the epicenter of Jewish activity in the first century. And Titus um, eventually has to go back and become emperor himself because his dad dies. Um, uh, then eventually he gets sick and dies. And eventually his brother becomes emperor and takes over. And to honor his brother and father, Domitian builds a famous arch that you probably heard, the Arch of Titus or Arco de Tito. Um, um, basically, between the arch in this picture, you can see the Colosseum sort of in the background. Um, and one of the most prominent places in the ancient city of Rome is where this arch that Titus's brother built in memory to commemorate the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the Jewish temple. And then in the second picture, if you look really closely at this picture, you can see there's a depiction of the Romans carting off the things from the Jewish temple, including a menorah. That this was such a big deal to the Romans that when they came back to Rome, they commemorated the destruction of this temple and the city of Jerusalem. Now you might ask, well, like, why in the world are you telling us this horrible, sad, long story at all? Why are you even telling us this? And this is important, that there's no mention of the war against the Jews or the destruction of the Jewish temple in the New Testament. Like, there's no mention of it. There's no reference and there's no insinuation. There's just nothing. And this is a big deal. That when you read the Gospels, you see constantly that it's all about activity in Jerusalem, activity in the temple, that you're supposed to go to the temple and do this, all these things in ancient Judaism. That how could they not reference this? That everything that they knew as Jewish people that became Christians or Jesus followers eventually was all around the temple. And it's all gone. It's all destroyed. So the question is, why is there no reference to this? And the most logical answer at this point is it hadn't happened yet. So all the accounts of Jesus in the New Testament and the, the, the accounts that we have in the scriptures happened or were written before the destruction of the temple. The history sort of indicates that Jesus died in about 30, AD 30 or 32, and then the temple was destroyed in about AD 70. We have pretty accurate dates on that. And so there's about 38 to 40 years between Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection and the destruction of the temple. And there's no reference, there's no insinuation, there's just nothing has happened yet. This, this thing about the destruction of the Jewish temple hasn't happened yet in any of the writings of the New Testament. And so it seems to be that that just hadn't happened. Those events hadn't happened because they hadn't even talked about it yet. Now some people might try to convince you that as Jesus' life, you know, more time went on and time went on, there was things added and changed and things kept getting, his legend grew and grew and grew. But the reality is that everything that we have that was written about Jesus and his life was probably written before 70 AD, before the destruction of the Jewish temple, because there's no mention of the destruction of the temple, which would have been a huge event that somehow they would have referenced, which means that likely they were written when all the eyewitnesses were still alive, in that 40 years between the re resurrection of Jesus and the destruction of the temple. Now, here's one more reason that sort of supports the fact that Jesus is, uh, the fact of Jesus' accounts 
in the, in the gospel of the scriptures. That if you were Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or you were somebody just wanting to write an account of Jesus, or, or even as some people say, there was an imposter that sort of wrote his own, made up his own account of Jesus's life 100 or 120 years later, here's what you have done. You would have leveraged the fact of the destruction of the temple in your narrative. Because Jesus said things like, I will destroy this temple and raise it up again. And then you could actually reference the fact, and now it's actually been destroyed. So it's actually true what he said. You would have used this for your advantage. There would have been so many other ways to leverage the destruction of the temple for your advantage if you're just trying to write a fake account or trying to make up something as you go. You just wouldn't sort of miss this opportunity. And yet, there's no reference to the destruction of the temple in the New Testament. Because most likely, all of our gospel accounts and all of the stuff we have written about Jesus and his life and the New Testament were written before this event. That the gospels are considered reliable because of who wrote them and when they were written. And if you start to start to ask the question, well, how long does it take for myth or legend to sort of grow or develop? Or how long does it take for truth to become myth? Or how long does it take for something that actually happened to sort of be joined together with something that didn't actually happen and eventually it just becomes this myth? Well, historians and researchers tell us that really myth and legend can't be started or you can't change history until all of the eyewitnesses or almost all of the eyewitnesses are dead. And a few decades ago, um, his, uh, researchers and people started to tell us that there would be theories floated that the Holocaust didn't actually happen. But it wouldn't surface until almost all of the survivors had died. And that just sort of doesn't make sense to most of us because there's actually pictures. There's even some video of it, of it actually happening. And you can actually still go and visit the concentration camps. But lately, in the last several years and many years, we've been starting to hear, well, the Jews just made up the Holocaust. Or it's just a conspiracy theory. And why did those myths take so long to develop? Because you can't start to support a myth or change history until the eyewitnesses are dead. And the Gospels were written when, while the eyewitnesses were still probably alive in that 40-year period between the, the destruction of the temple and the resurrection of Jesus. In that time frame, the, the eyewitnesses were still alive. And if you're one of Jesus' disciples, you probably wouldn't be too confused about the fact of, well, Jesus, did Jesus rise from the dead? Or was it somebody else? Or did Lazarus rise from the dead? Did Jesus rise him? Was it somebody else? I can't, let me like think about that for a second. Like those wouldn't be things you forget about. Those would be things you would remember. Because we take the gospel seriously because of who wrote them and when they were written. They were written by guys like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, James, uh, Peter, the, uh, Paul. These people all wrote about the life of Jesus. And so here are our statements. I believe Jesus died for my sin and rose from the dead. But not because the Bible says so. It's so much better than that. We believe it because Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, James, the brother of Jesus, Peter, and Paul said so, that's why my hope is in Jesus. That's why I've decided to follow Jesus. And I love the scriptures and I love the Bible, but the Bible is not the foundation of Christianity. That the resurrection of Jesus is the single event that is the foundation of Christianity. And that is why I can have hope no matter what is happening in this world. I want to encourage you to join us next week, though, as we continue this discussion by talking about the problem of pain and suffering as we continue to be prepared to share our faith. As we wrap up, though, if you're one of the people in culture who sort of has drifted away from their Christianity because of something someone told you about the Bible, I just want to let you know that you can come back. You don't have to sacrifice your brain to be a Jesus follower, to believe what happened in the life of Jesus. That the people who recorded the life of Jesus and the words and the events of Jesus' life eventually would give their lives 
for what they saw and what they experienced, not what they believed, but what they actually saw and experienced. And that, that fact sort of gives credibility, along with the fact of when the, the scriptures were actually written, the New Testament, the gospel accounts were actually written, it gives credibility to the fact of Jesus' life and what we believe about Jesus. That we take the Bible seriously because Jesus took it seriously and, because his, and we take his eyewitnesses seriously as well. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the scriptures. Thank you for these accounts that we have of Jesus' life. Thank you also for the people who wrote them. Thank you that they would eventually risk, and many of them would give their lives so that we could have them, so that we could read them, and we could understand what these accounts and who Jesus really was. Father, would you help us to see the opportunities to share about the hope that we have? And then, God, would you also give us the words to share that hope with the people who need it? Heavenly Father, would you please be with those that feel that they had to give up their faith or give up their hope somewhere along the way? That when they feel sort of that weird void tugging in their stomachs, like Jessica Meisner describes, would you put a Jesus follower in their life who could share their hope with them, who would be prepared to share about the hope that they have? Would you use someone like us to invite them back to experience the grace and hope of a God who loves them? God, thank you for giving us these tangible anchors to our faith. Would you help us to be able to speak about them clearly? Would you help our lives to reflect these truths? We ask for your help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.